Welcome to the Rudo Love Podcast, a safe haven for eros, pleasure, curiosity, and the challenging of the status quo. Canadian forest ecologist Suzanne Simard wrote a book called Finding the Mother Tree, in which she attempts to teach us all about the interdependency and purposefulness of trees, mycelium, the purposefulness of a tree sending not only messages and information to her children, but also water and nutrients, all via the mycorrhizal network of fungi and the roots, our first internet. As some of you longtime listeners may know, the first time I had my mother on the show, I called the episode The Mother Tree. So it's very full circle that as I delve into artificial intelligence powered by the internet, that I also have my mom on to delve. So welcome again to the Rudo Love Show, Dr. Randolph Hollingsworth, a.k.a. Yo-Yo Ma, a.k.a. Rudo's mom, a.k.a. Amai. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> on today's show, I wanted to chat with my mother because she has consistently, my whole life, demonstrated a fiery passion for a just, a protected, a well-educated, illuminated, and loving world. She's a historian, a profession which she reminded me the other day is a profession where sensitivity training and reflecting on how material culturally impacts others is baked into the work. She is constantly questioning how educational messaging and storytelling affects the listener, the student, and we're all students on the topic of AI. But are we at a point in history where we are lacking insight and guidance on some of the big ethical, legal safety protocols that will protect us from the unforeseen circumstances of new tools? My mother also happens to be a writer and content creator, so she's very invested in our creative rights, as well as policies that protect our information and identity. She's a self-taught coder, developing distance learning tech and protocol since way back. She was conducting structured play and learning experiments on Second Life. Some of you might remember that. She's so acutely aware of power and human behavior. So, yeah, glad to have you on here to talk about this. Recently, I've become more than a little fascinated with the AI race, and especially since the open letter from top founders, CEOs, and researchers to the world, that we should pause AI releases for a short while to address some of the concerns that have risen from the newest generation of programs. Interestingly, the letter was published on the 22nd of March, Pixie's birthday. Since then, the letter has gotten a lot of criticism, both as authentic doomsday toning and not seeking all the signatories' permissions, which I thought you might have some <laughs> um, interesting thoughts on, Mom, but also the ignoring of the harm that we've already experienced from AI as we know it, but only focusing on what could happen. It's really interesting to me that to follow on all of this, um, I can only get so far being on the lower level levels of comprehension from a scientific data perspective, but still, I consider it my bond to my future self and to my son, your grandson, and our community to understand what's going on, especially from a social impact standpoint. So being that you raised me to care about justice for all, you're here to get us to think deeply about some of the important principles at play here. So I'll start with a general opinion, if I may. Do you like AI? What comes to mind that feels grounded in your actual life versus what comes to mind in the vein of fantasy or fiction? In general, I think I like it. I think it can be an important and useful tool. Um, it is 
something that is an extension of ourselves because we help craft the intelligence associated with this machine learning. But let me just say that um, it's right in the middle of a gray area, and we all have to think really carefully about what we like or don't like or what we feel comfortable with or not. Um, For example, I feel very uncomfortable with the idea that you just let an AI loose in a corporate environment where, for example, in a large industry, it, it parses through thousands of applications from people wanting a job in this corporation. And the AI chooses which people will actually interact with another person. That makes me feel uncomfortable uh, if if it's not really thought through and all the, um, as you mentioned before, the ethical dimensions um, are not thought through. We have a hard enough time as humans <laughs> looking through a pile of applications to make sure that we're being fair or um, thinking what would be best uh, for a pool of applications, and um, uh, leaving an AI alone to make those decisions uh, makes me feel uncomfortable. But I, I, I see it ultimately as a, a tool, and like from the beginning of the use of a computer, I, I loved games, and um, you probably remember me playing Tetris. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was good for the old. Uh, brain cells and and stress to just play Tetris. It was just something amazing that it could do for your brain and stress levels. And I think, um, so like I used to play spades online, the um, card game. And there was a point where you could choose to play with other people that were also online. And I always chose the computer because when I went out and interacted with Spade's players with no introduction, no understanding of who it was that was sitting across the table from me. It's not the same thing as going in and doing a tournament bridge or something where at least you get to see the person. This is just looking at the cards and, you know, people would get mad and you could mute them, but it still then you might as well just play with the computer. So I liked... I. AI for that purpose. Um, GPS. I like it that I can turn on my map and not worry about um, getting stuck in traffic. Or if I do get stuck in traffic, it's because I know it's coming up as opposed to, oh, I wish I'd gone the other way. But there are people who use the GPS and then don't also use their own minds and as a consequence, get turned around in ribbons of streets that don't make any sense and keep following the GPS rather than their own minds about the decisions to be made. So, again, it goes back to what what do you feel comfortable with and how, as an individual, how easily are you um, 
not duped, that's not the word, but how easily are you convinced that the machine knows more than or better than you do? Of course, it'll always know more, but... That's okay. We have a grandmother clock that will chime in from time to time. (laughs) Ambiance. So, yeah, I think I like it. Yes. And in terms of... um, Reality versus fantasy, do you see um, in your mind's eye a really big difference between how you move and shape the world based on technology now versus how um, perhaps someone like Octavia Butler or um, probably not Ursula Le Guin because she was more um, Earth-based science fiction. But yeah, like I'm curious to know how much um, fantasy has shaped your understanding? We just <laughs> no, it's done. That was twelve. That was twelve bongs. I don't think it's going to be as distracting as you yeah. think it is. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm curious to know about how much um, the imaginary imaginary narrative has shaped your understanding of AI, or you're more practical and just um, built like you you have the kind of partition between you know, the fantasy realms that you read versus how you exist in this world? Or is there a big overlap for you in your imagination? I think the science fiction from iRobot to her um, describe a, a wonderful problem that we as humans need to figure out. So um, I got into that science fiction. I really, I, I like that puzzle that they put forward. And the closeness of a human, for example, in her, where he, he, he literally falls in love with her, doesn't mm-hmm. he? And it's mm-hmm. just so, and you think, well, you know, would he fall in love with a plastic toy? I mean, it, you kind of wonder about that. And the, then you start to wonder, well, what is the expectations of that particular individual male towards a female? Mm, right. So how did that inform his predilection for loving this thing that pays attention to him instead of... A real human. And so it just, uh, for me, it's a puzzle as much as, well, why why are people still eating <laughs> octopus, for example, when we know that there's so much sentient beings associated with this animal that... We we don't even have a clue, really, and the um, uh, the puzzle around um, uh, sentient beings like crows uh, understand themselves or are conscious of themselves. When we said, "Oh no, no, no only humans are that way," <laughs> and um, that an octopus would sit there and kind of say, thank you, you know, back to a human being that Mm -hmm. did something for him. 
you go, ooh, we haven't really thought this one through. The same thing is true, I think, for AI. We haven't thought it through. But it, the difference is, I think, between animals and machines is, in my mind, very clear. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, in terms of, because I think what you're describing is both the, the imaginative play of these moral problems, these, these puzzles to solve, but you're also talking about relationships. Um and being in the right relationship with both yourself and others and um, like your own inner compass. But the analogy that um, AI has built an inner landscape, uh, a city inside of our imaginations. And I love this analogy that it's like tech, tech companies and social media has um, been the urban planners, um, but we actually haven't done much of the planning um, and that our attentional landscapes, therefore, are unregulated, privatized, and potentially polluted. If we go with this analogy that social media has designed a city in which our intention a habit inhabits and our imagination inhabits, how do you, you feel your city is going? Let's say the algorithms of AI that's been built have all these highways and canals. Where do yours go? Where, wh what's the symbolic buildings and commons in your realm? And how do you, how do you feel about them? Well, I like it when a machine knows what kind of music I like. <laughs> and if it can describe, oh, you want to have feel good music this morning? And you think, oh, well, that's a very vague thing. But that it actually puts forward music that it does make me feel good. I like that. <laughs> and it'll put forward music that I wouldn't have chosen myself, but that I, makes me feel good. So I, I feel enriched by that. But let me give you um, uh, an example that's a little more constrained. When I was uh, with the Kentucky Virtual University back in the early 2000s, I uh, helped to build um, interactive programming uh, using various software platforms that for example, one of the things that I helped build and actually got a big award for <laughs> was a um, professional development environment for adult educators. Uh, in Kentucky, um, there's a whole system of education that is for adults who either haven't finished high school or adults who are seeking um, additional learning uh, but don't have the background for it. Mm. And in many cases are almost, that are illiterate, mm. lowest levels of literacy. So the um, that educational system, we called it adult ed, and um, it was supplemented by uh, two-year degrees, but ultimately um, you're talking about one-on-one -on -one interactions with an adult to figure out how to, for example, read a menu in a restaurant mm. or how to fill out a job application or how to, um, um, you know, borrow money from the bank. Mm. So life skills that, you know, there are in, in Kentucky, it's like 25% of the population is unable to do some of these basic life skills due to their inability to read and write at that level. So um, the 
machine learning that we had uh, produced, um, it's not, I guess it wasn't AI in the early 2000s. It was a combination of data sets that could be presented in a um, clarifying way to the user. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was an early form of artificial intelligence because it could recognize certain patterns that were happening and present new data um, that that worked well for the, the user. So in this adult education professional development software that we were sort of combining and designing uh, would use information from the universities of opportunities that they would offer to an adult educator. Um, For example, they could go back and get a master's degree and get a higher rank and a higher salary, or they could get um, um, some professional development opportunity that was happening at such and such a date at such and such a place. So there's all these data uh, bits and pieces that would have to be gathered up. Mm. And the machine would do that gathering and present it in such a way that it would be useful to the adult educator seeking professional development. And there's different levels of, of opportunities that we designed and said, no, 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 this is a lower level, that's an upper level. So that, that platform um, kind of navigated the user through all the different opportunities. Well, we're talking about people that lived in very rural areas or had very few opportunities or had people around them that really had never taken those kinds of opportunities. So they, their horizons were actually very um, close. You know, they couldn't imagine really far out. And these were educators that were trying to extend their horizons for their students. Mm. So um, what this machine could do in ways that a lot of times, certainly not university people, because that was a whole different crowd for these individuals. It would be, in a way, safer or considered more neutral to have the machine present an opportunity that that person would never have thought of before. And it's not like it was smarter than them, it just gathered those things together. So there's your city landscape. In other words, in my mind, what we were building was something that allowed for people who tend to close things off for themselves for various reasons. I mean, it's not like they're being mean to themselves. It's just that... Self-protection. Self-protection. It could be... Um, um, you know, you don't want to get too big for your britches. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't want to. You don't want to seem too uppity around people that would otherwise uh, find you to be part of them. But it it gets gets the juices churning, and you think about different kinds of things, and in a way that uh, you discovered rather than some uppity university person telling you. Yeah. I mean, that's a good example of kind of like an unbiased algorithm. 
you know, we we think about like your example before around um, a piece of technology that matches the um, job applicant with the current structure or a current demographic of a company and that being like a really negative outcome of bias. Um, but then you're, you're, you've designed a, a way for us to be able to um, champion ourselves outside of our own personal um, confirmation bias or negative bias against ourselves or, or our impact or how we're, how we're seen. So it's really, that's actually a really, really great example for me to kind of show what is inherently true that technology is neither good nor bad in a moral sense. It's the outcomes that come from it that we have to be able to be conscious and responsible for. Right. So the user becomes empowered and makes the decisions, even though it sounds like the machine made a decision and it did, but at the same time, um, the user gets to choose. Another thing I was thinking about when you asked me this earlier was the idea that, you know, like on movie night where you can't think of anything and you ask on Facebook, what are people watching these days or whatever? And, you know, you're not quite sure what would be good. You know, I would love it if a machine would go out and find not only what would be a movie that I would like, but also a price range and if there are seats and is it close by? Do I take a bus? You know, those are things that machines do great. Um, and um, it's just a matter of getting that uh, set up. Yeah. The concierge AI, which is like really, really popular in my industry, in the in the health industry. We're always thinking about how we can um, make healthier um, empowering options for the end user, you know, our members. Um, so yeah, the the kind of concierge power of AI is is pretty cool. Well, I don't know um, when you were when we first came back from Africa and you were a baby. I got a job um, right away and um, um, started up my PhD program and then dropped out and got another job. And they, the person who hired me knew that I was an educator and was interested in, in uh, teaching people. And the um, job she gave me was to roll out, and this is before everybody had computers. There were, there were some people who had computers, but typically they were associated with a mainframe and they were, you know, big number crunchers or big word processors. There's not really, you know... Um, uh, computer on the desk kind of thing. Mm. So, but everybody had a phone. So we rolled out something called voice messaging system. And I got to um, go around to the different colleges and teach people how to program their phones such that they could be sending voice messages to various people, either on a scheduled time or on as part of a um, kind of um, uh, as part of a kind of um, stepped answering machine. Okay. So like, you know, when you call up a, a big uh, help service and they say, dial nine for this, oh, yeah, or yeah. right? And some people can do that really bad. Mm. But if you had artificial intelligence behind it, it could do a lot more 
and you wouldn't even know that it was a machine because you're listening to a human voice. But it's paring down and figuring out really what's going to be the best part of a company for you to be directed towards. And, um, you know, there are a lot of people, oh, I hate that dial nine and then you dial seven and then it doesn't even give you an option for what I want and so forth. I mean, it, it, if you had artificial intelligence, it was learning as that thing was happening and gets all these different kinds of questions or statements by the customer. All of a sudden, it's not just what, you know, the phone designer imagines somebody's going to ask. It's learning from the actual customer base and would provide, I think, a better service. So, um, you know, I've been on both sides of this. One is the voice messaging design process, which is uh, limited by your own imagination. Mm -hmm. And if you're not the person always calling and you're just the person that is coming out of the faculty and knows your academic background but has no idea what people who call actually need, then it, or has less idea, it um, um, it can be a really uh, exciting use for a tool for that thing to learn from the experiences. Um, when I was at the Kentucky Virtual University, too, we had this kind of customer management, like you were talking about earlier, customer, uh, CMS, uh, customer management system, and um, or CRM, what's it called? Relationship management. And um, so this is in the early days of these kind of software. But we had a pool of uh, operators, um, and all of them, you know, like many of them came from academic advising backgrounds. So they were very service-oriented and knew a lot about all the different universities. Anyway, but we had them hooked up to the CRM so that when a phone call came in, um, there were some people that could be identified by this system. And so the advisor would see on the screen that it was this kind of person asking this kind of question. And so they're kind of prepped and better prepped than if they um, just took a cold call. So I think, you know, it can be, it can be really useful. Mm. So in terms of what you do now, I mean, these are wonderful, wonderful memories of how you've seen this world be shaped. But in terms of what you do now, what, what kind of responsible practices in your digital life do you partake in? What are some of the important concepts you think about as a, uh, user of your 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 creating articles um, for those listening that may not know um, you're an active contributor of Wikipedia um, and and I'm thinking about copywriting I'm thinking about combating disinformation or inaccurate research conclusions what are some of the things in your daily digital life that are top of mind for you well. Because I do humanities um, as my background, um, I have come across really stupid people <laughs> who think they can do what I do, and they just can't. They really can't. And they, it, it's sad. 
in a way to kind of go, oh, that's really bad. <laughs> and it's, and I get kind of snippety about it. But, you know, so in a way, I would rather a machine, you know, go ahead and try to take it on because hopefully in in a world that allows for freedom of expression, a historian can always go, that is just not right, or that's no good, or that has no, you know, when you hear stories about people telling chat PT to, to create <laughs> an article for them, and then it makes up its own reference <laughs> footnotes, and you're like, okay, how many students in the 35 years I was teaching tried to do that same thing? <laughs> it's like, no. You can catch that really fast, and it's not—it's not something that people should be scared of. I think because they're, you know, a machine does it, a human does it. It's still bad, um, and can be corrected and can be made better. But you were asking me what I really think are important for us to imagine, and I think, you know, there's a lot of times um, people imagine, oh, this is so convenient. Like I was talking about the music, you know, it's so convenient. But have I given up something about my own privacy? In other words, how is that data going to be used? Is it going to be used for me, for my convenience? Or is it also going to be used for an investor who's looking for certain types of, of potential customers, right? Or potential... Um, um, points of data that would uh, support their profiteering. Um, so kind of privacy issues in often in competition with convenience. Um, I think those that's a, something that you know it's a little above my pay grade <laughs> in a lot of ways because you don't really know where your data goes. So that's why I try to do everything open access. I try to do everything um, that I create. Uh, if it's not for a university press, then I try to make it um, uh, a Creative Commons, you know, share alike or just open license. Because I really don't ever know where the, the, the intellectual property goes. I really don't. So if it's used for somebody else's profit, in a way, I don't, I don't mind because it's, I said, it's for anybody to use. And if it's used for somebody's profit, then that's great. You know, I, maybe I was too dumb to do it for myself, but I, <laughs> I don't, you know, I, I don't care. So I, I, I personally, as a scholar, tend to work towards Creative Commons licensing. This is very cool. I was wondering, given that, <laughs> given that there's sort of two realms within the digital space, there's the educational realm that we've talked about. And we've also sort of kind of, but not really touched on the, the social uh, realm of the digital world. Um, and they're somewhat two separate industries. So, Bearing in mind that I'm just I'm distinguishing social and educational digital spaces and AI, 
what do you want for your grandson in both of those aspects? What's a, what's an ideal future? What's an ideal outcome uh, for AI and tech for a little, little seven-year-old guy? Well, I believe that in the social realm, we have an opportunity for AI to flood the content generation uh, of the internet. Um, not, not that that is bad. I, you know, it's always good to have content, but we need different tools to be able to monitor and um, access the meaning behind that content. So, for example, the the content associated with political messaging, there could be robots that answer, but they're stupid robots, and you can tell when they answer that that's robot. I mean, you can you can look at the name, or you can look at the background of the person, the, the account, and you realize, oh, that's 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 not a real person, or um, it's a plastic doll. <laughs> So we need um, more uh, complex uh, mechanisms by which to measure the use of AI for uh, this content generation, for example, messaging around politics. And if it's AI that is, has nefarious reasons, we should be able to catch that really, really fast and stop it. Instead of just individuals going, oh, that's just mean, or that's <laughs> that's violating a terms of use or whatever. As an individual, you have every reason and in many places responsibility for, for complaining about um, something that was generated by an AI or a, a human. But the... Um, reality is that it shouldn't rely on an individual to monitor that. It it has to be an AI that matches the complexity of the AI that creates that content. And that's not something that I, as a humanities person, can do. This is something that is a whole different um, uh, realm of engineering and uh, software uh, creation that I hope my grandson um, can take advantage of. But in the meantime, we just have to keep on slogging through what are what are the decisions that you as an individual are making and why did you make that decision? And always come tell mommy. <laughs> because it could be a, a nefarious thing. And, and we want to we want to protect our children, but we also want to help our children grow and learn. So. Um, I think it takes both things, but I think we're slow on the uptake on figuring out the complexities of a regulatory. I don't, maybe that's not the right word, but sort of a, you know, if there's a giant AI um, spewing political messages, then there needs to be a giant AI that tells somebody who worries about that sort of thing this is what the AI is doing and this is what 
impact it's having, and here's the penetration percentages and so forth of that that nefarious thing. So we just need to keep building those kinds of machines. Mm. As I imagine, who may listen to this episode? And as I imagine my audience, as I know them to be, I know there's a big variation of opinion and affinity for the electric brain. But it's fair to say AI has enabled our lives to be directed, curated, augmented, so much so that it's easy to miss its engineering. But we are often confused as to what AI is, and we offload personal responsibility to the concept of race, racing to be the first. I'm personally very relieved that we have strong voices for ethical, humane expectations of the use of tech. Uh, in particular, I'm interested in Ruman Chaudhry, Tristan Harris, and Aza Raskin. I agree with their call for more global bodies that would look to protect and restrict harmful use of tech. Advancement should not come at the cost of humanity. I'll leave you some articles and examples of their work. And also, in a very easy read uh, from Caltech's Human Exchange, uh, Science Exchange website, I learned that AI tech is neither good nor bad in a moral sense, and that there are just things that we need in order to trust AI. And it's a great read, and I'll drop it in the show notes. Um, for many... I know that this this era feels like a disruption of major industry, like film, art. Many of us exist on social media or YouTube and have already felt the massive burden that optimized for attention algorithms have had on our habits. And I'm keen to keep up my community dialogue of awareness, participation, and ethical impacts. Um, so if you have more you want me to consider, or if you're particularly curious about what uh, my mother has discussed, I'm available on Instagram, Facebook, Substack as Ruto Griceworth. You can find me. And I'd love to chat. Thank you for your time. Thank you, mom, for your time. And I trust that you all hold your personal freedom in the same importance as a safe and protective world for our little ones and want the best for us all on this beautiful blue planet. So thanks to the amazing minerals also that we use to create technology and to the animals and natural elements that inspire us to build and grow. And thank you to the brave and determined ancestors on whose work we stand upon and the memories that whisper in our bones. And thank you to the communities and spaces that hold us. I love you. I'll catch you again soon. Kakite anoa ho, yakoto, be well.